Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Let's open in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for this Lord's Day to come together and hear from your word. Pray, God, that you would guide and instruct us, lead us in the truth, because the truth sets us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are starting a new sermon series, and the, uh, the sermon series is Joshua. And you'll see the tagline here is be strong and courageous. By the way, I get to use my laser pointer today, which I'm very excited about. Uh, you know, I'm like that. I'm like a cat. I love laser pointers. Be strong and courageous for the Lord is with you. And uh, I picked the book of Joshua or the person of Joshua for different reasons, but it really occurred to me this week uh, that I think the Lord chose this sermon series because right now uh, in our time in our nation, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians need to be reminded uh, that we are called by God to be strong and courageous. You see, uh, throughout church history, for the majority of church history, Christians have always been the minority in the society. They have been 1% or 10%, sometimes 20% of society. And because of that, they have often been marginalized or persecuted, sometimes thrown in prison, even put to death because of their beliefs. That is the majority of church history since Christ's ascension into heaven. We have been living in a very strange time over the past couple hundred years in which Christianity has been the majority in the United States of America. For the most part, uh, the morality of Christianity, uh, the, the ethics of Christianity, even the, the gospel of Christianity has been widely accepted by the majority of the nation. But if you've been paying attention, you probably know things are changing. Things are changing. Uh, Russell Moore uh, had said this a, a few years ago, and I, I, I don't forget because I think it's so true. He said, we are at a time in our nation where Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians have gone from the moral majority to the prophetic minority. They've gone from the moral majority to the prophetic minority. Let me give you an example, just in case you need one. My wife works at a place, and one month of the year, they want to celebrate diversity. And so they give out these t-shirts that they can celebrate diversity with. And I am all for celebrating the God-glorifying diversity that he has given through ethnicities and skin colors and languages. And the, the beauty of God's diversity in people displays the craftiness of his handiwork, and it displays his glory. But as you can guess, that is not the diversity that they are wanting to celebrate with these t-shirts. And so even though they're not mandated to wear these t-shirts celebrating diversity that is uh, not celebrated by the Lord, but condemned by the Lord, 
It still takes courage to say gently and lovingly, I'm not going to wear that t-shirt. I am not going to go in that direction. Even at a more public level, you may have seen this with the U.S. women's soccer team. A few months ago, uh, there was a woman who said, uh, I love Jesus and I'm not uh, going to celebrate what God calls sinful. And because of that, she was condemned by many, many people. Um, but, but it's broader than that. Uh, you even see, you know, in the news this past week, there are, there are men in our, in our city who want to play women's sports. And, and it takes courage as a church to gently, lovingly, compassionately say, no, God has a better plan for us than this. But it's even broader than that. I mean, kids, there are, there are things that, that happen today on social media that would not have happened 20 years ago. It would have been unthinkable, and it takes courage for a child to say, we should not do this. We should not act this way. We should not, we should not participate in these things. We should stop these things. Even to talk to your friends and say, hey, I think we've gone too far. It takes courage. It takes courage. What about for adults? For adults, it, it takes courage when, when the whole world is saying, you know, every religion is basically the same. We're all just trying to earn our way to this God, and, and, and you can't say there's only one way that's, that's too exclusive. It takes courage to say, let me show you how Christianity is different than every other religion. We have gone from the moral majority to the prophetic minority. Sadly, some of you have even experienced this in your previous church. In your previous church, people have, have, have lost courage, have strayed from the scripture, and have gone the path of the world instead of being strong and courageous in the Lord. And so can you see why we need this sermon series? Can you see why you and why I need to be reminded to be strong and courageous? Because to be honest with you, many Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, instead of being strong and courageous, simply recede into their holy huddles and talk about how everyone else is wrong. Instead of engaging the world for the sake of the world and the glory of God. And that's what we will see in the life of Joshua and in the book of Joshua. A call to him and to the people of God to be strong and and courageous for the glory of God. And so today we're going to actually start in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, if you would open up to Numbers chapter 13, it is page 121 in the Red Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible in front of you. By the way, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is kind of a in-the-church conversation today, talking specifically to Christians. We're glad you're here, but no, this is primarily who this passage focuses on uh, today. Um, like I mentioned last week, eventually we'll get to the book of Joshua, but, but Joshua uh, appears in a lot more books of the Bible than just the book of Joshua. Uh, he appears in Exodus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, uh, all which take place before the book of Joshua. We're first introduced to Joshua in Exodus chapter 17, as Israel is coming out of Egypt, and they have no weapons but the plunder of Egypt. Uh, they are attacked by a group called uh, Amalek, by a tribe called Amalek, which who we'll encounter today. And Moses gets Joshua and says, Joshua, gather together uh, fighting men and go fight them, and they win the battle. Uh, and so Moses makes Joshua one of his right-hand men. 
Uh, Today's passage takes place about two and a half years after the exodus out of Egypt. And before we kind of dig into it, I want to give you a little bit of uh, the setting of where we're at. And so I have a map up here for you. And this is, this is kind of the guest, uh, their guess of, of the path of the Exodus. So they left Egypt and they, they came down to Mount Sinai. And again, that's kind of a guess that that's Mount Sinai. But the reason why they came down to Mount Sinai is because God was preparing them uh, to go into the promised land. He was preparing the people. He was, he was, he was uh, educating them. Of course, famously, God gave to them the Ten Commandments, but he did so much more than that. He also uh, instituted and instructed the Levite priests. Uh, he instruct, gave instructions for purity and restitution. He, he gave instructions to how to dedicate the tabernacle and how to celebrate the Passover meal. And so the Lord brought them down to Mount Sinai to prepare them to take the promised land, which is up here. So if you could go to the next slide, after they're at Mount Sinai, they then creep up here to the wilderness of Paran. You'll read, you will hear about it this week, and this city, Kadesh uh, Barnea, okay? And so this is now where they are at, this huge nation of people. And they are really uh, on the precipice or on the, the verge of entering into the promised land. And so you can tell just by their position that God is saying to them, it's go time. It's time to take the promised land of Canaan. And that's where we pick up the passage. So let's start by reading Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. According to the command of the Lord, all of them, men who were heads of the people of Israel. And these were their names. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zechor. From the tribe of Simeon, Shephat, the son of Hori. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Rephu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gimali. From the tribe of Asher, Shethur, the son of Michal. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Voshi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Maki. These were the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. In a culture, even a church culture, that is quickly strained from biblical values, biblical ethics, and even a biblical gospel, there is a temptation, a strong temptation, for Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians to isolate. To isolate 
and just welcome into their homes everyone who thinks like them, talks like them, and worships like them. But that is not what God calls his people to do. Throughout the scriptures, God does not call us to recede from the world, but to engage the world with the truth and the love of the gospel of Christ. We are called to make disciples of all nations. God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to live our lives in communion with God, but also on mission from God. But this takes courage. And so why should we courageously live missionally for God? Why should we do this when it's so much easier just to adopt the values of the culture we are in? When it's so much easier just to spend our free time surfing the internet and binge-watching Netflix? Why should we be courageous Christians in a hurt and lost and dying world? Well, according to Numbers 13, we can live courageously as the people of God because we have been given the promises of God. That's our first point. Christians, be of good courage because to you is given the promises of God. I'm not gonna reread verses one through 16, but look at verses one and two with me again. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. You've probably heard of this phrase, the promised land, and heard and know that it refers to the land of Canaan. And the reason why Canaan is the promised land is because 500 years before Moses, uh, God appeared to a man named Abraham. At that point in time, God had rescued Abraham out of pagan idolatry. He and his wife, Sarai, who uh, came to the land of Canaan as sojourners. Sarai, his wife, was barren. She was elderly and she was childless. And yet in Genesis chapter 17, God makes some amazing promises to Abraham and to Sarah. God promises Abraham that from his barren wife will come a great multitude of descendants, a nation that will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. God promises Abraham that he will be with him, that he will be present with him all the days of his life and with his people. And finally, God promises them a piece of land. He promises them the land of Canaan, which is then known as the promised land. Genesis 17, 8 says it this way. He says, and I will give to you, this is the Lord speaking, and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so God promises childless, godless, homeless Abraham a people, which they become when they go down to Egypt, they become this great nation of folks, a presence which God makes clear as he protects them and guides them and directs them and provides for them throughout their time in the wilderness. But God also promises them a property, which is the promised land of Canaan. Now this promise of Canaan that was given to Abraham is reiterated to Moses time and time again and the people of God as they are journeying through the wilderness towards the promised land. And before they go in to take the land, the Lord directs Moses to send reconnaissance into land, to spy out the land, 
to see what's going on in the land. And so we read the list of leaders that come from each tribe that go in on this mission. But two of them that I want to highlight um, because they're main characters in our story. One is Caleb, who is from the tribe of Judah. And the other, of course, is Joshua, which is the name of our series. And that's where we pick up the narrative here in verse 17. After Moses gathers these men together, he commissions them. Look in verse 17 with me, if you would, and we'll read down through verse 20. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev, which is just north uh, where they are, and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage. Be of good courage. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This tells us that the time of the year that they were going in was late July through late August or through early September, which is the season that we happen to be in as well. But in this commissioning, Moses is giving them two major tasks. First is to find out about the people who are in the land. Chances are the people in the land are not going to willingly surrender the land to this nomadic group of people. And so Moses wants to know what's going on. So he and Joshua, his military leader, can strategically plan to take the land that God has promised. Moses wants to know if they are strong or if they are weak, if there are a lot of people or a few people, if they are well fortified or if they are vulnerable so that they can strategically take the land that God has promised them. And so first, Moses wants to know about the people in the land. But secondly, Moses wants to know about the land itself. Is it a good land as God has promised? Is it a fertile land, a fruitful land? Is it indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, as God has said. You see, Moses, under the direction of the Lord, sends these men to courageously spy out the land that God has promised to be their future home. Now, how does this apply to us today? See, Christian, you too are recipient of the promises of God given to Abraham, even in fuller measure than Israel was in that day. You know, God has promised his presence, which we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit, an overflowing measure of the presence of God with us all times in all places. God has also promised you a people, which if you look around, this is the people that God has promised you. He's promised you his church, a community of believers. But God has also promised you a land, a promised land that is greater than the one we read of in this chapter. It is a promised land that is out of this world. It is the promised land of heaven. And because we have these promises that we cannot lose, we can live courageously, generously, sacrificially, and maybe even a little bit recklessly. Let me give you this example. And this is a very politically charged topic, uh, which... I've already brought up one, might as well bring up another, right? But, but, but take the politics out of it for a little bit just to get the illustration, okay? Right now, as you know, there are thousands of people crossing into, through our southern border on a daily basis. 
And crossing our southern border is not like a, a luxury cruise, right? Uh, many of these people walk hundreds of miles with their children to get to the border. They are in danger of starvation, in danger of thirst, in danger of drug cartels. There are a lot of dangers all around as they journey to the border. And when they get to the border, there is even more danger crossing through a river that is flowing or climbing over a wall or going underneath barriers. There are a lot of dangers to do it. And so no matter what your political view is, we have to admit this takes courage to do. It takes courage to pack up your family and leave everything you have known, all your securities, to go to another place. But what motivates these people to be so courageous is that they have their eyes fixed on a better land, a land that is safer, a land that is happier, a land that is more fruitful. Christians throughout the centuries, even around the world today, have showed tremendous courage, even to the point of martyrdom. And what has given them that courage is that they have had their eyes fixed on another land, a promised land, a happy land, a holy land, a safe land, a glorious land, the holy land of heaven that is for us. As we sang in the hymn just a few minutes ago, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Christians, be of good courage because while you are wandering in the wilderness of this world, to you belongs the promises of God. To you belongs the promises of God's presence through his Holy Spirit. To you belongs the promise of God's people through his church. And to you belongs the promised land of God that is in heaven. So first, we can be of good courage because to us is given the promises of God. But secondly, to us is given the plenty of God. You know, one of the things Moses wanted to know was, what is this land like? And so I want to look here at verses 21 through 25. Uh, but before we do that, there's a map here on the screen. And uh, you can remember that they are encamped here and they're going to start heading up this direction. We're going to, I think, see wilderness is in and then they'll continue up that direction. And then if you could go to the next map, uh, this is kind of the journey uh, all the way up through the promised land. You'll hear about uh, Kadesh Barna, Negev, and then Rehob. And um, I think there might be something else we'll see in there as well. But if you want, you can look up there or you can read along with me verses 21 through 22 uh, and on. Verse 21 says, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, which is in the south, to Rehob, which is in the north, near Lebo Hamath. And so that's kind of the summary statement of what they checked out. And then it gets a little more detailed. Verse 22 it says, They went up into the Negev, which is the bottom promised land, and came to Hebron, uh, Ahimen, Sheshai, and Tamali, the descendants of Amalek, were there. Uh, we'll read more about them later, but uh, they were a very tall people, maybe Dutch, I'm not sure, but they were very tall. Um, it goes on and says, Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. So Zon was a capital in Egypt, and these guys would have been very familiar with Zon. It was a well-established capital in Egypt. And by remarking that Hebron was built seven years before Zon, it is telling us that it was a well-established city uh, that had stood the test of time. And so it was not easily conquerable, okay? Verse 23 continues. 
It says, and they came to the valley of Eshkol, which in this map is probably just north of Hebron. Okay, so Hebron's right there. It's probably just right about there. Okay. And they came to the valley of Eshel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. So I'm guessing you've gone to the grocery store and you've picked up some grapes, right? And you can just kind of pick them up with one finger. I've never been to the grocery store and seen two people come in with a pole, right? Like that's a big cluster of grapes, probably the size of a small child. And there, there are pictures of it. As you see, there can be clusters of grapes that big. And so this is what they're going uh, to pick up. Verse 24 continues. It says, the place was called the Valley of Eshkol, uh, which in Hebrew means cluster, because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And so the spies have now returned home and they're reporting to the leaders. Verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Remember again, one reason Moses sent them into the promised land was to check out the land because God had promised that it was a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if they were going to go into battle for this land, they wanted to make sure that God's promises were true, that it was indeed as good as God had advertised it to be. Recently, uh, our Chevy Suburban, which had over 330,000 miles on, so I can't remember, it recently died. Uh, and the reason why it died was because we forgot to put more oil in it. It, it burns oil. Uh, I wanted it to last the 400,000 miles so bad, um, but it was our own fault. Uh, but anyway, so the Suburban broke down, and so we started looking for a more fuel-efficient car, because both of the cars we have are fairly uh, not efficient on fuel, and fuel is expensive. And so we're looking for a fuel-efficient car, and at the meantime, I'm also trying to sell my boat, and I've been trying to sell it for years, and a guy contacts me, and he says, hey, I'm interested in your boat. By the way, I have a Prius. Uh, could I trade you my Prius and some money for the boat? And I'm like, well, let's get together and, you know, talk about it and try each other's vehicles out and stuff like that. And so we get together and take him out on a boat ride and it goes great and we come back and we park and then we jump into his Prius and we're driving and the biggest thing I wanna do is get it up on the highway to make sure that it's running good and all that. But I get in the Prius and there's a rattle and he says, oh yeah, that's just a pan that's with a loose screw. You know, you just, we'll tighten it up if I sell it to you, I promise. And I'll get the oil change and stuff like that. So we get on the highway and it's riding really nice and it's going well. And, and all of a sudden I smell this guy's body odor, all right? And I don't say anything because that would be rude to say. I just kind of quickly make it back to the dock where we're doing this transaction. And we agree to go ahead and make the deal. And so I have the title, he has his title. We sign it off and we do that. And, and, and uh, maybe we did it I can't remember exactly, but he did take the car and he said, okay, I'm going to go get the oil change. I'm going to fix this thing and that stuff. So, so then, okay, then we did meet back up later. Sorry, I got to get the story right. And I got the car and he got the boat. And as I was driving the car around, uh, I realized it was not quite as advertised. Uh, that smell in the car was not the gentleman, it was the car itself. Uh, evidently, the, the air filter had not been changed in years. 
and so that smell was there. Uh, I, I checked the oil just to make sure. There was no oil in the engine at all. And so I filled that up with oil. Uh, and then the, the craziest thing is that our, the radio was demon-possessed. And so, like, when, uh, so, so, so you could only turn up the volume maybe, uh, you know, 30 seconds of the day. The other rest of the day, it wouldn't work. And so you couldn't turn it up, you couldn't turn it down. On the screen, you could change the station, the preset stations. But here's the thing, every time you took the turn, took a turn, the radio station would change. And so, and so, so you'd be listening to a really good song approaching a roundabout and you'd slow down until it got to the chorus because you really wanted to sing the chorus, right? And you'd be going from church to the highway and you'd have like 10 different stations between here and the highway. And so this car was not quite as advertised, but $1,000 later in a bunch of YouTube videos, it's good to go now. But it wasn't quite as advertised. God had advertised this land as a land flowing with milk and honey and a abundant land. And when the spies come back to give the report, they tell the people of God it is as advertised. In fact, God underpromised and overdelivered. It is a good land, a rich land, a happy land, a land flowing with milk and honey, with grapes and pomegranates and figs galore. It is an exceptional land, a blessed land, a fruitful land. It is a hopeful land for people who have been in slavery and who have been wandering in the wilderness for two and a half years, seeking a place to call home. These Israelites who were just in bondage for 400 years, have been given the plenty of God. Christian, have you forgotten that you too have been given the plenty of God? You know, I must confess that I often grow bitter and angry and entitled and frustrated because I forget all of the riches that I have been given in Christ. As we've already said in Christ, you have been given the presence of God the people of God, and you are destined for the promised land of God. But in Christ, there is so much more. In Christ, you are a son and daughter of the living God. In Christ, you have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, you have the knowledge of the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Christ, you have new mercies every morning. In Christ, you have redemption. In Christ, you have the assurance of salvation. In Christ, you have an unshakable joy. In Christ, you are fully known and fully loved by the one who made you. I love Ephesians chapter two. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says this, so that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you know that you can measure the riches of Elon Musk? You can measure the riches of Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and Bill Gates. But Christian, no one can measure the riches you have in Christ, for they are immeasurable. And for all eternity, Jesus will be revealing more and more and more all the riches that are already yours in him. You know, it's been said that the most dangerous people are those who have nothing to lose and everything to gain. But we can be courageous because we cannot lose anything and we have already gained everything that we need in Christ. We cannot lose the unmeasurable riches 
we possess because they are secured by God himself. And so Christian, be of good courage because to you is given the promises of God. To you is given the plenty of God, but also to you is given the power of God. Remember the spies just gave a great report on the land, but then there is a but. There's always a but, right? There's a however. Oh, it's great. But, right? Oh no, what comes next? Verse 28. However, same thing as a but. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The ESV study notes uh, comment that indeed the, the cities were very well fortified, like the city of Hazor had 200,000 people about the size of the Green Bay area, and it had walls that were 24 feet thick. Could you imagine? 24 foot thick walls. And so what the spies are reporting here is not untrue. It was a very intimidating land. The spies also mentioned the descendants of Anak, which means neck, and it's because they were very famous for their height. You can think of people like Goliath in the Bible, very tall people, people you would not want to run into, into a, in a dark alley. Verse 29 continues, and he says, the Amalekites, which were the people that first attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt, dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordans. In other words, yeah, the land is great, but there's no way we can get this land. These people are bigger than us. They're stronger than us. They're more fortified than us. They're more powerful than us. Skip to verse 31. We'll come back to verse 30 in a second. Verse 31. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Completely true. Verse 32, so they brought, up, they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people, not some of them, all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. The Nephilim are mentioned in Genesis 6 for the only other place, and they are children. Uh, don't ask me the theology on this. Uh, Katie said we, know, we don't know a whole lot. But, but the, the Nephilim is, are, are children that are born of an illicit union between, the, quote, the sons of God and the daughters of men. And so I, I don't understand this, but somehow some heavenly beings had impregnated mortal women, and they had these these monstrous children. I mean, think of Incredible Hawk. And they're saying, these are the people that are inhabiting the land. We have no chance. The spies saw the size and the power of the people and their courage evaporated because taking the land would be impossible in and of themselves. But there is a minority report, a sentiment articulated by Caleb but also shared by Joshua and Moses. Look in verse 30 with me. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it 
for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb must seem out of his stinking mind. There is no way this nomadic people can triumph over these established giants in the land. How could Caleb possibly say, we are able, we can do this? Well, the hint is in the next chapter. Look in Numbers 14, verse 7 through 9 with me. And I don't want to give way too much of next week's sermon, but it's helpful for us to understand Caleb's courage. It says, and Caleb said, verse 7, 14, 7, and Caleb said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he, that's an important word, he, he, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. Do not fear the people of the land for they are bread to us, right? They crumble. Their protection is removed from them. And then here it is. And the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. You see, while all of the other spies were fixated on the power of the people in the land, Caleb and Joshua and Moses were fixated on the power of God who they believed would give them the land. And they believed this for good reason. They just saw this God bring 10 plagues upon Egypt. They just saw this God part the Red Sea and crush the, most, uh, the strongest military in the world below it. They just saw this God provide manna from heaven and they saw this God do so many things. In verse two, remember the Lord said, I am giving this land to you. He doesn't say I might give or I hope to give or I'm thinking about giving it to you. He says, no, I will give this to my people. And the hope of Joshua and Caleb was not in their own power, but in the power of God on their behalf. I shared this story a long time ago, but when I was a kid, I was in Boy Scouts for a few years, and I remember going off to Boy Scout camp, and one of the merit badges that you could earn there was to swim a mile. Uh, if you know me, I love playing sports, but I am not an endurance athlete. I don't like running a long way, swimming a long way, not my thing. Um, and so I thought, you know, it'd be great to get the merit badge, but there is no way I could swim a mile, especially because there were no floors. So it was just out in the middle of a lake. There were two canoes with a rope tied, and you have to swim around it like 50 times or something like that. And so I'm like, you know, that's not for me. Uh, but then my counselor came up to me and said, hey, Dan, do you want to uh, go for the mile swim merit badge? I'm like, oh, I'd love to get that merit badge, but to be honest with you, like, I just can't swim that far. And he's like, no problem. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we'll go and we'll swim it together. And when you get tired, just kind of hang on to my swimsuit right here, okay? So, you know, I, I'm like, okay, well, let's do this. So I go out there and I, I, I swim like once around the canoes and I'm done. And so I hold on to a swimsuit. And sure enough, this guy who swam in high school and a mile swims like warm-ups for him, swam the entire rest of the way for me and I got the merit badge, um, now, now, that's not ethical in the Boy Scouts, right? But, but this is what God is calling us to do. God is saying, hold on to me. I will be your power. I will be your strength. I am calling you to do impossible things. 
You do not have the power to accomplish them, but I do. And I am going to work my power through you to accomplish my promises. You know, I think one reason why God moved giants into the land of Canaan was to make this very point, that they were going to occupy the land, not by their own strength, but purely by the power of God. Some of you are here today, and God has put a calling on your life to do something great. Maybe it's to start a ministry. Maybe it's to to volunteer in the church or outside the church. Maybe God has called you to to share the good news of Jesus with a a neighbor or maybe a relative, and, and you are petrified to do this. But God has put this burden on your heart. He has put this calling on your heart. And you are hesitating. Because like the 10 spies, you are afraid of the people. You're afraid of the power of the people instead of fixating your eyes on the power of God who calls you to this. Church, this is a time for compassionate and courageous Christians. Christians that want to storm hell with a squirt gun. We need Christians that want to take the world for Christ. Christians that will not resist the calling of God because of the power of the people, but will fearlessly pursue the calling of God by the power of God. This is a time that God is calling us to be strong and courageous. Let me end with this. I I don't know how this happened, but... I figured out that when I become close to someone relationally, when I become friends with them, I either start calling them by their nickname or I create a nickname for them. And so, um, you know, Pastor Spencer, uh, I'll call him Spence or I'll call him Pastor Slippers because if you've ever seen him during the week, he wears slippers all the time. Uh, Pastor David, I don't know why I call him D-Gal. doesn't even make sense, but I call him, what's up, D-Gal? Katie Horton, we call K-Hey. Uh, Terry, our new maintenance guy, he won't like, we call him Tear Bear. I don't know why, but um, Angie, we just call her boss because we don't want to offend her. And she's, um, some of the guys in the congregation that I'm really close with, I'll just say, hey, ugly, right? Like that's, and, and you girls, you don't do that. Uh, guys, you can't do that with a lot of people, right? But like these guys, I say, hey, ugly, and they're like, I didn't know you cared, right? Like, like that's, Nicknames are a way that we show endearment to them. I don't know if you know this, but in this passage, there is a very important name change. In verse 16, after it lists out all the spies going in, it, it, it remarks on this name change that happens. It says, there were name, these were the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, who was already mentioned, he said, calls Hosea the son of Nun, Joshua. He changes his name from Hosea to Joshua. And the reason why Moses changes his name from Hosea to Joshua is because the name Hosea in Hebrew means he saves. He saves. But the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And Moses wanted to remind his right-hand man 
that would eventually take the people into the promised land, that they would take it not by the power of Joshua, but by the power of Yahweh himself. Furthermore, do you know the Hebrew name Joshua? Do you know what it is in the Greek? In the Greek, it is the name Jesus. Christian, just as Israel could look back on their deliverance from Egypt to remember the power of God for them, so we too can look back at a greater Joshua. We can look back at the cross. Because at the cross, the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ, took on the giant enemies we have of Satan, sin, and death, and he triumphed over all of them, thereby fulfilling the plentiful promise of God in his death and resurrection. Christian, the world is getting crazier by the day. And while it is so tempting to isolate, to put our feet up, to huddle together with those that think like us, be of good courage, because to you belongs the promises of God. To you belongs the plenty of God. And of course, to you belongs the power of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so, so thankful that you chose this sermon series that you knew that, that we needed to be reminded to be strong and courageous, not in and of ourselves, but in you, because you are with us wherever we go. Lord God, may we apply this passage today. May we apply this passage this week. May it not only be in our heads and in our hearts, but may it work its way out through our hands. I pray you will give us opportunities to be courageous for you, to be humble, to be gentle, to be loving, but to be courageous and take a stand for the God who loves us so much that you sent the greater Joshua to save us. Help us, we pray. We cannot do this on, your own, on our own. We need your power. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.